Amen. My name is Jeremy. I'm the director of our young adult ministry here. You all can go ahead and have a seat, man. I love getting to worship with you all Sunday mornings. It is such a pleasure to get to do that. Uh, So as the young adult director, I get to spend a lot of time investing in this sweet community of young adults, and it's been so fun to see what God has been doing there. A good portion of my time goes to seminary, and then more recently, a good chunk of my time has been going to re-watching the show Lost with my wife. Any Lost fans out here? Oh yeah, okay, some hands are going up. It's a great show. I, uh, I watched it back in high school, and so I feel now as though I have this deeper connection to some of the characters, but it's been long enough since I've seen it that I, I forget where the plot is heading. And this is gonna sound so dramatic, but I think one of the most annoying things someone could do is come and remind me of like, where this plot is heading. That would be so frustrating. I hate spoilers more than anything. And so I'm wondering this morning, are, have you ever had a time where something was spoiled for you? where it was uh, maybe a riveting story that you were sucked into like Lost, whether it's a TV show or a movie, a book. Maybe it was even a sports game and someone ruined the final score for you. You were gonna go back and, and watch the championship game later and someone just blurts out, zero consideration of others, blurts out the final score. Uh, it's terrible, so frustrating, your heart sinks. And uh, I think this might be just my, my biggest pet peeve, if, if I'm honest with you guys. But is it even a pet peeve? I think that being annoyed with people who spoil endings might just be a justifiable part of being human, honestly. Uh, that might be my sin talking, but don't listen to that. Uh, but with all of this talk about spoilers, the ironic thing this morning is that I'm going to spoil the greatest story that's ever been told. <laughs> the story of scripture. We're going to be flipping soon to the end of this book, and as we read the end in chapter 21 of Revelation, we're going to see just these events unfold of God redeeming his whole world, his whole universe. The fullness of redemption is what we get to read about, but here's the good news. Great news, actually. The more time that we spend our gaze on the end and what God is going to do, the story is unique in that the better it's going to be when those things actually take place. So in that sense, there's no way I can spoil this for you. The reality is, when we're confronted with the reality of what God is going to do one day, all the time we've spent with our our thoughts and imaginations of how these things are going to unfold, it's going to pale in comparison when God comes back and every knee bows before him and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. So there's no way I can spoil this, but I'm going to try just a little bit. So turn now to Revelation 21. And, uh, and as you do, some of you might be wondering, man, uh, this guy doesn't have enough gray hair really to know that this could be a bad idea. Or uh, maybe it's the man bun, I don't know. But we're going to have a lot of fun in chapter 21, so get there with me. And as you get there, I'm actually going to go to the very beginning of this book in Revelation uh, to verse 1. And, and, and there it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And what the beginning of this book tells us, it tells us a couple things. One, that this book is all about Jesus. And that, that gives us a lot of clarity and, and hope because there's, there's different perspectives and there's different ways that we can interpret Revelation, the way we can go about it. But at the end of the day, we all have to come together again and say, this book, it is all about the person of Jesus Christ. And the name of the book, it is a revelation. It is revealing Jesus. It's making plain, it's making clear things that we need to know as a church about who Jesus is. This also gives us hope because I think it's, it's easy sometimes to think of Revelation as if it's actually doing the opposite, as if it's shrouding things or hiding things, but, but rather what Revelation is doing, what, what God has gifted us with this book with is an ability to bring things uh, to clarity that were once hidden before. 
And so my, my hope for us this morning is that we would get our eyes on Jesus, that we would receive the things he wants to reveal to us. And then, and then just a little bit later on in the, in the beginning of this book, it says that blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And so there is a blessing that we can actually receive as a church today as we hear the words of Revelation read aloud. So with those things, let's go ahead and get started. But first, let's, let's pray. Bow your heads with me. God, we are just uh, eagerly awaiting what you want to do in our midst this morning. As we get our eyes on you, uh, would you just reveal truth to us? Would you make it uh, plain and clear from, from this passage, this beautiful passage, Lord, the things that you desire for us to take away? Uh, we live in a broken and hurting world, and so God, help us just by getting our eyes on you. Would you give us just immense hope from this passage, and would we uh, receive the blessing that you have to offer us this morning from it? We pray all this in your precious name. Amen. Okay, so as we uh, prepare to dive into chapter 21, uh, this morning we're going to be looking at three future realities God makes very clear to us in this passage. So let's begin verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Okay, time out. There will be no sea. All the beach lovers in the room just got super bummed. What? Like, the new heaven, the new earth, this paradise we're going to live in, there's not going to be any more sea. Well, this is something that, that um, has been super interesting. Uh, as, as we look through the whole narrative of Scripture, we actually find that the sea is used over and over and over again to indicate chaos and judgment. If you think back to Genesis, the, the sea is used by God to, uh, to judge the earth. Or if you think of, of Exodus, where God uses the Red Sea uh, to destroy the Egyptian people who had been enslaving his chosen people. Um, God uses the sea to, to indicate judgment and and chaos to us. And so the original audience of this is they would have read this. They would have read no more sea. They would have gone, oh, no more chaos, no more judgment, rest, peace. And that's what should come to mind for us as we read this. Okay, time out over, verse two. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Wow, this, what a rich passage. There's so much here. We're going to unpack this a little bit. So, so go back with me to verse 1. We see this word, then. John's saying, then these things happen. Okay, John, what, what happened right before this? We need to ask ourselves, what happened before What's just taken place is judgment day and the defeat of Satan. So every man, every man and woman has been held accountable before God for their actions and whether or not they place their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And Satan's been put where he belongs. And that, that leads us to this passage. So after all mankind has been judged by God, Satan's put in his rightful place. When the sea or chaos is no more, God will redeem or make new the whole cosmos. And when I say cosmos, I just mean universe. Everything that God's created I'm reminded of the, the Sunday school song, if you know it, he holds the whole world in his hands. And, and when we read that, the, or when we sing that, the whole world, we're talking about heaven and earth. It's going to be a little confusing. It's like, wait a minute, doesn't God live in heaven? Doesn't he dwell there? Heaven's also a created place. In the beginning of Genesis, we read that God created the heavens and the earth. And as the creator of it, as the one who holds all of it, he can do with heaven and earth whatever he wants to do. 
That's how amazing God is. And so what he's going to do at the end of time is he's gonna make these places new. He's not gonna destroy it, rather he's gonna redeem the whole earth. And so it's actually gonna be similar in a lot of ways to the earth that we know, but perfect, so it's not gonna be similar at all, if that makes any sense. Uh, This place is going to be perfect. So God makes perfect heaven and earth, and verse two tells us that God brings heaven to earth. So look back to verse two. We read, the holy city, New Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven from God. Okay, but what is the New Jerusalem? This is where we need to start. We need to begin by by talking about the old Jerusalem if we want to know what the new Jerusalem is. So the old Jerusalem, it was where the temple had been built to the Lord. Uh, This is where God met with his chosen people, the Jewish people. So Jerusalem, firstly, it's a physical place. And secondly, because it is where God met with the Jews, it also represents God's chosen people. And then thirdly, it embodies the presence of God. It was in Jerusalem, specifically in the Holy of Holies, or a room in the, in the back of the temple where God most manifested his, his presence and met with his people. So the, the new Jerusalem then, in light of these things, it has the same three components. It, it is a physical place, but it's a heavenly place. It contains all God's people now. So as we get to Revelation 21, this place is no longer just for the, for the Jewish people, but rather it's for, for all who would believe, for, uh, people from every tribe and na- nation and tongue. So this place is for the full church of God. And finally, the new Jerusalem will embody the unrestricted presence of God. So whereas before, where his holy presence manifests in this, in this small room, in the new Jerusalem, the presence of God is going to permeate and fill every, uh, every corner of this incredible place. So now that we have uh, just more of an idea of what this place is, uh, just imagine with me that you're John, and you're getting to see this vision as God brings this physical place containing all believers with his unrestricted presence to a redeemed earth. Just think of how mind-blowing this would have been to be in John's situation, getting to like, see these events unfold. This is huge because we see throughout all of Scripture, God desires to dwell with his people, and this is like the, the climax of all of that, of what God is planning to do. And so in order for us to really appreciate this, it's, it's so helpful to go back and to see ways that God has dwelled with his people throughout time. Uh, these, some, uh, there's going to be some slides on the screen behind me, and these may look familiar to you if you were here the last time I preached. Uh, but it's so good to just get a refresher of, of how ways in which heaven and earth have essentially overlapped as God has met with his people. And so this begins in, in the Garden of Eden. God creates this beautiful garden, and he creates Adam and Eve, and he walks and he talks with them, and God has this, this personal relationship with them. And, and the Garden of Eden was truly uh, seen as a place where heaven and earth overlapped. But you may know the story of how Adam and Eve were not faithful to obey what God had commanded, and they chose to go their own route. They chose to rebel and and to choose sin. And in doing that, uh, they could no longer be in the presence of God, and so there becomes this chasm, this huge divide between heaven and earth. And so there's nothing that mankind could do. There's nothing that Adam and Eve could do to fix this huge chasm that they've created. And so the Savior, God, had to come low, had to draw near. He had to bridge the gap. And so God graciously does that out of his kindness in the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, and these were, these were places, as I mentioned before, the, 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 temple, or the Holy of Holies was, was in these places. And um, just physical locations on earth where, where heaven and earth overlapped. But the Jewish people, God's chosen people, kept rejecting these 
uh, these precious places and God himself, and so a more permanent solution was needed, and that comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, God the Son incarnate, comes to earth, bears the weight of sin for all those who would believe in him, and in so doing that, he crushes sin, uh, being crucified, but then is raised to new life, ascends on high, and as he does that, Jesus eliminates this gap between heaven and earth so that they can be united together, but here's the thing, that hasn't happened yet. Right now, we're waiting for that to happen. And so now, what, what has happened, the, since Jesus rose on high, he's poured out his Holy Spirit into the lives of believers, and when believers gather together, First Peter tells us that we're like stones built upon one another, creating this temple or this holy place where God is pleased to dwell. That's why it's so important that we gather together regularly. This is how heaven and earth overlap now, but we're waiting a time. We're waiting a time when God is gonna do something new. Because here's the deal, as we look back over all this history, essentially the, the whole Bible, as we look back through this, there's been something missing in every stage, even in the very beginning. A way of thinking about this is that uh, the garden, it was a perfect building site. It had all this potential. If Adam and Eve had just been faithful to do what God had called them to do, if they had uh, stewarded the earth well and made lots and lots of babies, would cover the earth and would glorify God by bearing his image, the whole earth then would have been glorifying and pleasing to God, and God, I believe, over time would have united heaven and earth together. But Adam and Eve didn't do this. We haven't done this. We've sinned against God and created a chasm, and so uh, there's no way that this perfect building site could be built upon. And so we need God to finish the project for us. And that's what the new Jerusalem is. It is a completed project, the completed perfect city. So when when God's place, God's people, and God's presence, the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to earth, God will unite heaven and earth together. And and this is where we see this this picture of marriage in in verse two. As, As much fun and as beautiful as weddings are and marriage is, These things are actually copies or shadows of a way greater union that's yet to happen. Just as in marriage, we see uh, two distinct people that become one miraculously in marriage. So the the new heaven and the new earth are going to become one by the power of God. So why is this so major? Why am I so passionate about this? Well, the rest of the chapter is going to make it more clear. Let's let's look to verse 3. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Just think, how close are we gonna to get to be to Christ for him to wipe away tears? How near are we gonna to be to his presence? And, and many of you, you know tears. You know hardship. You know fatal accidents. You know incurable diseases. You know funeral services and final goodbyes. You know evil and pain. On this day, suffering will be dealt with and gone forever. We can cling to that hope as we go through really hard things this side of eternity. Man, I long for the day that everything will be made right. And verse five says that he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
You know, we're, we're not used to things becoming new. Uh, think about it. I mean, things get old with time. Uh, my, my back hurts. I'm only 24, and I have back pain. I play, I play volleyball with a bunch of the young adults, and I come home, and I'm like complaining about my back, and Megan will look at me like, what is wrong with you? You're an old man. I'm like, I know. I'm getting old. That's how I feel sometimes. Things get, things get older over time. Your, your battery on your iPhone or your Android, whatever, it gets worse with time. But there is coming a day when all of this will be reversed and things just get new. God makes all things new and they continue to get newer. Here's the deal. As, as Adam and Eve, they had jobs to do in the garden. They had ways of, of making things better over time, of, of naming the animals and stewarding creation and, and uh, having lots of offspring. We are also going to have jobs in the new heaven, the new earth. We're going to have work to do that, that fulfills us and that we enjoy. And so imagine with me as, as maybe someone is charged with, with planting seeds, and every time you plant a seed, that seed grows into a perfect tree, and that perfect tree bears perfect fruit. And just how enjoyable our work will be when there's no more sin or strife, when, uh, when we get to work together in this new earth to create uh, infrastructure or to create what, whatever it may be. I don't know what these jobs are going to look like, but God's going to give us work to do. And over time, things are going to get better and better and better. And our contentment will always be there, but we will be continually growing in our passion and love for God, for his glory. Romans 8 tells us that all of creation is longing for this, that we should long for this alongside all that God has made. It's all groaning and yearning to be made new, and that will one day happen. So this is truly the summary verse of this chapter, and it leads us to the first future reality from Revelation 21. It's this, God will make the cosmos new by redeeming and uniting heaven and earth. Praise God for that. And we can have full assurance of this because of verse 6. Because this promise, it's united to God's very character. In verse 6, it says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And you might be thinking, Whoa, this is incredible. I'm pumped for this. I mean, I'm, I'm pumped for the redemption of the universe and to be made whole and to, and to have this, this deep purpose and contentment for, for eternity. But, but what does this mean for me now? As I live in a world that's so broken, I turn on the news and I see so much pain and wickedness and suffering. What does this mean for us now? The following verses are going to help us answer this question. So look with me to the end of verse 6. It says, uh, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. As children of God, we, we are adopted into the family of God. And, and so how do we live now in light of that reality? We stop turning to saltwater wells that don't satisfy. We turn to the only one who will satisfy, who will quench this thirst. And as children of God, we have so much hope in what God is going to do. As we see this brokenness around us, we know that this isn't the end. What Revelation 21 tells us is that this all has a purpose, that God is sovereign, he's in control, he's going to lead his universe into this perfected place where we can dwell with him forever. And that gives us so much courage to face hardship, knowing the end from the beginning. So if you're a child of God, you are whole, and there is nothing that can pluck you out of his hands, and you're given an eternal mindset that provides us just with so much hope and encouragement. But what about those who are not children of God? Uh, Verse 8 is going to share with us um, some clarity on this. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, 
Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You know, this, this verse should evoke a lot of, I think, healthy fear in us of the God we serve. And the reason it evokes fear in me is because I, I look at this list and I go, yeah, apart from Christ, that's me. I'm a coward. I will turn to other things, e- ways to make things easier rather than going the hard route. Uh, I'm faithless. Without the gift of faith, I'll turn away from my faith every time. My sin is detestable. I may not have ever murdered someone or been tempted to do that, but I have had hatred in my heart. And Jesus says that if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. I've struggled with sexual sin. I've, I've wanted to turn to, to other things to find some sort of power uh, outside of myself and God. Uh, I've struggled with idolatry and, and lying. Oh, like, this list is me. And the, and, the, and the sad reality is that this list is you, too, apart from Christ. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ has done something on our behalf such that his righteousness is placed upon us so that when Christ looks at you, if you are a child of God, he no longer sees a faithless man. He no, no longer sees an idolatrous, immoral woman. The Father sees his perfect son, Jesus Christ, who has become your substitute. Jesus got what you should have gotten when he died, and you get what he should have received having lived a perfect life. That's the good news. It's scandalous, but it's so good. But for those who do not cry out for the help of God to save them, they will not become children of God, and they will undergo a second death. And a second death, the entirety of Scripture speaks to this, that it's not a momentary death. It is an eternal punishment. And it is an everlasting punishment because God is holy and just. He cannot allow wrongdoing against his infinite holiness to go unpunished. So think with me of, of a blazing sun. If any of us were to travel into space and we got nice and close to the sun, what would happen? We'd be consumed. Yeah, we'd burned up. Why? Because we are not the blazing hot sun. It's pretty simple. But when you think of the sun, think of the holiness of God. What God offers us as his children is the, is the opportunity to be transformed and to attain the same properties of the sun so that we can travel to the center of this blazing hot star and not be consumed. In order for us to be in God's holy presence, he must make us like himself. His perfection becomes our confection, perfection. So in other words, either you cry out to God for help and become like him such that you can be in his presence forever, or you choose not to cry out to him and you must be separated from his loving presence forever. This reality is so tough, and it's so tough, in fact, that, that a lot of preachers uh, will not preach on this, but as a church, we've decided we, we, have, to, we have to preach on this. We have to let, know, let it be known the reality of what's at stake so that as believers in the room, we can have a deeper sense of urgency to go to the ends of the earth and to share the gospel, to share what's at stake to others. And, and to those who are not saved, and if there's anyone in the room here saying, yeah, I don't know that I'm saved. I don't believe that I have a personal relationship with God. My goal this morning is not to scare you into some sort of relationship with him, but it's to say, look, if the Holy Spirit begins to woo your heart to himself, don't delay. What's at stake is way too severe. And so you can come to him now. His salvation is made available to you. His righteousness can be placed upon you if only you would just cry out. Cry out in your seat if you need to. Cry out and say, God, save me. I need you. I need your help. That's all it is. There's no formula with it. Just cry out to God and he will save you. He will make you his child. And this leads us to, uh, to 
the second future reality that we see in Revelation 21 this morning, and it's this. God will make his children new by causing them to conquer. If you are a child of God, you can rest assured that you will conquer. You will be changed as you become like Christ, his victory becoming your victory. So John, he sees in his vision what is at stake for the cosmos, and he hears what the future holds for every child of God, and now his vision is going to shift to what the whole church is going to encounter on the new earth. This is what John says in verse 9. He says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Okay, another time out here. Bowls, they're, they're judgments. And either they're ongoing worldly events, maybe events that we've encountered or have encountered in the past, or these are just future end time uh, judgments that, are, that have yet to be poured out. And some of you would love to, to talk more about, hey, which is it? You know, let's, let's talk about this. And those conversations can be good and fruitful. But for the time being, we just need to know that at this point, these judgments have been poured out in Revelation 21, and uh, the judgments are gone and over. Okay, so resume with me now. It says, and the angel spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. It's about to get real good. So now, uh, in what we're about to read, uh, there are going to be quite a few details. And so as we read, uh, as we read these details, we can't miss out just on the grandeur or the beauty of the whole. And so to keep, uh, to make sure we stay focused on the big picture, I just want to give you the third future reality. And this is, this is what we're going to see the rest of the chapters communicating to us. And so here it is, God is going to make his church new by giving her unhindered access to himself. Man, praise God that we will have unhindered access to him. This is the best news we can possibly hear. And this needs to be our focus as we press on the text. Uh, I do want to point your attention to one, one specific detail, and that is how often, as we begin to read again, how often the number 12 is going to show up. And the number 12, it's going to help us understand the point God is making here. So, so keep an eye out, starting in verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay, what is going on with the number 12? In verse 12, ironic, the 12 tribes of Israel are mentioned, and they're written on the gates of the city. What are the 12 tribes? The, the 12 tribes represent God's chosen people, the Jewish people. So hold this with you on, on, on one hand. And then at the end of verse 14, we read of 12 apostles who are written on the foundations of the city. Who are the 12 apostles? These are the men Jesus entrusted his gospel message to. So through the faithful work of the apostles, the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth, aka to the Gentiles, to people of every nationality. And so what we see here is we see a picture of the entire church. Jewish people, Gentile people, all people who have put their faith and hope in God will be, this city belongs to them, where they will dwell with God forever. And, and just how wonderful is it that God would intentionally design this city, this eternal city, to express the reality that he is drawing and one day will draw every believer to himself. Every detail communicates a beautiful message to us. So let's, let's continue exploring the city together, starting back in verse 15. 
And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Wow, thanks for that side note, John. I was just wondering the other day what an angel's measurement was. <laughs> Weren't you? Jeez. I love that, these fun facts we get from scripture. But quickly, I, just, I wanna pause uh, a bit to share two things with you that these measurements communicate to us. Because it can be easy to get caught up in the details. But here's the thing. There's only one other space in scripture that has the same length, width, and height. There's only one other cube in scripture, and that is the Holy of Holies. The room in the tabernacle and the temple where God must manifest his presence. And so when we come to this huge, gigantic city, what we're seeing is the, what the real deal, what, what, the, what the Holy of Holies was a copy or a shadow of, the real thing is coming out of the sky wherever to the, the redeemed earth where we get to dwell with God. That's incredible. And secondly, 12,000 stadia is massive. I didn't learn about stadia in elementary school. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I looked it up. I did some research, and apparently 12,000 stadia, if I were to draw or measure 12,000 stadia from the ground up, we'd end up way out in outer space. That's how, that's how far out 12,000 stadia is. And so we, you know, we think of the length and width of the city and the ways that we may be able to, be able to explore the, the length and the width and all around. But I just find it so interesting. And this is where it gets fun. It's just just to imagine, what, what could this be like? The fact that, that this city goes 12,000 stadia up into what we would call space, in the galaxies. What, will, will there be an opportunity for us to get to explore every facet of it? As every facet is proclaiming the, the excellencies and the glories of God, I just have to wonder, will there be... Will there be like a gravity switch in heaven that gets flipped and we're able to like float up and get to encounter all of these realities? Probably not, I don't know. But maybe engineers in the room who've been gifted with, with those abilities, maybe you'll uh, develop uh, aircraft that we get to fly around and see. And, and here's the thing, wh whatever it does happen, we don't know, but whatever this does look like, everything that we see will point us back to God. Everything that we see in this city is going to point us to the throne. And we're going to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Alongside the seraphim, these blazing angels who just circle around the throne of God and they're looking at it for all these different facets and different ways and they're crying out. They never grow tired of it. Crying out, holy, holy, holy. We will do that too. Every part of us as we get to see this magnificent city is just where our eyes are going to immediately go to Christ. And you just know it's going to be breathtaking. So keep reading with me. Let's resume with verse 18. It says, The wall was built of jasper, and while the city was pure gold like clear glass, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. All right, there's that number 12 again. 12 jewels. John rattles off in, in what we just read, these 12 different jewels, and we actually see these jewels elsewhere in Scripture. So when the, when the great high priest, when he would go into the, uh, into the room, the Holy of Holies, once a year to atone for all the sins of Israel, he would wear on his breastplate uh, these 12 jewels, each, each jewel representing one of the 12 tribes. 
So the fact that these 12 jewels like, embed the very structure of this city tells us something. It tells us that, that rather than needing to, to go somewhere to atone for sin, that sin is eternally and infinitely forever atoned for. It's been completely dealt with. After judgment day, our sin will no longer, it will never again be thought of, never remembered by God. And we can thank him for that. With finality, every sinful thought and action has been judged to never be remembered or thought of again. And there's no longer need to atone for sin because Jesus, he finished it on the cross. And that's why verse 22 is going to tell us there's no longer any need for a temple. If the temple was a place where heaven met earth, being in God's presence without a temple means there's no longer a gap to be crossed. Look at what John records for us. He says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Verse 23, And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Come on! All praise and glory and honor to the one who paid it all, to the king of kings who will one day make us kings and queens with him. So we get to rule over this earth and this new earth. We get to abide in this perfect place. And I believe what this, what this is saying in verse 24 when it says the kings of the earth, they'll bring glory into it. It's referring to us, the saints of God. And there's a way in which we can live this side of eternity on earth now as we pursue the holiness and righteousness of God. As we uh, work our best at being, um, being holy as he is holy by his grace, by the power of his grace alone. There, there are ways that we can achieve some sort of glory that as kings and queens, when we enter into this holy city, we will be pleased to just lay that glory at his feet, just to honor him, to bestow all kinds of praise and worship unto him. But it won't stop there. This passage tells us that the, the gates are always open, and so we will be able to walk in and out of this eternal heavenly city placed upon earth, and we'll walk across a redeemed earth, and we will go, we'll have jobs, we'll do things where we work together, and we'll do things that glorify the Lord, and we'll bring this glory back into the city, and we'll continue for eternity to lay it at his feet and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If this doesn't excite us, there's something wrong because this is going to be magnificent. A, a time when we do this, will we, be, we will be so fulfilled by it. We will enjoy every moment of it, and our joy will just increase for all of eternity. Our names written in the Lamb's book of life. <sighs> Friends, his, his brilliance is going to be so bright, there's no longer need for a moon or a sun. And though we will not sleep, we'll be at perfect rest in this place. So brothers and sisters, I just urge you this morning to live your life in light of this reality. As we uh, just abide on this side of eternity, uh, live as disciples of Jesus Christ. Live the 4W type of life, a life in which you worship Christ, you walk with him, you work for him, you witness about him. That your life may be honoring and pleasing to him and one day we may come into the gates of this a beautiful city and just lay at his feet all that he is due and all that he is worthy of. So this morning, uh, we're just gonna continue worshiping as we contemplate the God who will make all things new to redeem his cosmos, his children, and his church for his glory.
Now let's continue in a spirit of worship and and just give God the praise and honor he is due. So if you would, stand and, and worship with me.